previously on Strange Trails. Nothing ever grew back there. When I ran a test of the dirt, it came back revealing the ground had been salted. Heavily. So, if your dad didn't take her, what do you think happened to Margaret? Well, I know what happened. Oh? Shadow Man took her. Welcome back to Strange Trails. I'm your host, Finn Mitchell. In our lives, there are two types of decisions we make. Or, that's how I like to think of it. There are top-level, could-go-anyway decisions. What we have for breakfast, which shirt we wear, hair up or down today. And then there are base-level, gut-instinct decisions. Do you tell your crush you like them? What do I want to do with my life? Is this path one I will follow to its end? And the thing is, we can choose whichever option we want in the top-level questions, and our lives are essentially unchanged. Pancakes, button-down, side part, will lead to the same basic experience as cereal, graphic tea, ponytail. But the base-level questions, there is a right answer to those. And we know it, intrinsically. We can ignore it or deny it. But it feels wrong. The most we can do, if we're not ready to choose yet, is to push those decisions off. We can pick the quote-unquote wrong choice. For a time. But it won't sit well. Eventually, you're going to tell your crush you like them. You're going to lean into your passions, either as a career or as a hobby. And that path you were too afraid to follow? You'll return to it, curious about what's at its end. I share this with you because that call I received about the fire could have come from anybody. It could have been a prank, for all we knew. To Omari, it was a top-level decision. It wasn't from a reputable source, he didn't offer anything over the phone to prove he knew anything, and we have others in the town we can talk to, so ignore it. But to me, it was different. He'd reached out twice now, determined to remain anonymous, at least over the phone, So many questions piled on top of each other that meeting with him became a base-level decision. I could have turned him down for his 10 a.m. meeting, but I knew I would regret it. And I knew if I did, I'd be waiting impatiently, hoping he'd call back, silently stressing over losing a potential source of information. How does he know what he knows? What does he know? I had to find out. Against Omari's wishes, I left the motel at 9.45 a.m., drove to the Mill Creek Bridge, and then waited right along the railing for the last few minutes to pass before I would finally meet the caller. Unbeknownst to the caller, Omari had come with me and remained in the back seat of the rental car, watching from afar just in case anything shady happened. At 10.01 a.m., I received a call from the blocked number. Hello? I said come alone. Uh, I am. Walk to the far end of the bridge. There's a small trail off the left side leading into the woods. Could we... uh, Is it possible to meet out here? Fuck. If the caller was watching me, 
He'd know if I went to Omari. So I frantically texted him to let him know I was going into the woods, but his response didn't come through before I'd reached the path the caller described. It started about 15 feet from the road, among some underbrush, and then disappeared around a bend in the lush plant life along the edge of the water. I couldn't see or hear anyone, called out hello and got no answer. So I continued forward. Like I said, base level decision. It was about a three-minute walk into the forest before things opened up and the trees spaced out a bit further, and there, thirty feet ahead of me, I could see the caller. As I approached, I took in as many details about him as I could. He was leaned against a tree, a pair of binoculars dangling from around his neck and perspiration dripping from his forehead. It wasn't a particularly hot day, so either the effort of getting out to the woods at his age which I won't reveal for reasons that will become clear soon, was taxing on him. Or he was just as, if not more, nervous than I was to be face to face. We shook hands and introduced ourselves. I told him I was recording, and he looked like he wanted to run away at the mention of that. I don't think he'd anticipated being on the record, as in literally being recorded. I offered to distort his voice to protect his anonymity, and that was enough for him to agree to stick around and talk. Thank you for agreeing to this. Thank you for investigating. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Because the police did investigate the fire, right? Yes. They knew it was arson, but they never figured out who exactly started it or why. Right. So what am I going to be able to get access to at this point that they couldn't? Me. I was there. Oh. Well, I'm glad you're coming forward then. But why now? Why not tell them what you know? I can't trust them starting to feel like a theme. So, what do you know about the fire? What can you add? I guess, start with, what was your role? Did you help start it? Absolutely not. It was already gone when I got there. So who did start it? Older kids. I didn't know them. Okay, hang on. Wouldn't you have been a child when this happened? Like a very young child? I was. What were you doing out at that time of night? I really don't want to get him in trouble. Who? My neighbor. It was late. Very late. I woke up to get a glass of water and saw him outside, by himself, running from his house. He always told me he wanted to run away, and I thought he was doing it. Except he didn't have any bags or anything with him. Just a bunch of blanket in his arms. I wanted to stop him, but I heard my parents moving upstairs, and I thought they were coming to check on me. I ran back to my room and pretended to be asleep. It ended up just being my dad going to the bathroom. Once he was back in bed, I ran downstairs, put on my shoes, and snuck out of the house. My neighbor was gone at that point. I was a slow runner, but I had an idea of where he'd have been headed. I made my way to the bridge. Ever been there alone at night? Haven't had the pleasure. Especially as a kid. Scariest thing. I knew these woods. I played here all the time with my friends growing up. But that was during the day, and in company. At 3 a.m., it's a different story. The trees are just blackness. It's like a void. But I knew he'd cross the bridge, so I knew I could do it too. I followed, and then once I passed the end, I started looking for footprints. The grass was tamped down on the right-hand side of the road. So I figured he'd veered off to stay hidden from any cars that might drive by. I 
and any adults who might try to bring him back home. It took forever to reach the end of the little path I was following. I stopped, scared out of my mind at every branch breaking or leaf rustling that I wasn't absolutely positive I'd cause. If I was following his steps, I was unlikely to catch up anytime soon. But then things started looking familiar, and I heard the sound of people, a group of them. Then suddenly there was light, and I followed where that led. The light got brighter, the voices got louder, and the area became more familiar. I realized I was coming up on the clearing where my friends and I loved to play. We thought it was our secret spot. I didn't have any time to consider where I was, though. The talking had changed to yelling and screaming, and the light was getting brighter, too. Once I reached the clearing, I could see a bonfire in the center of the dirt just sort of melting away. Essentially liquid fire. Lava? Yes, but that didn't make sense to me. There are no volcanoes around here, so it wasn't something I could comprehend. So the lava was starting the fire? No, no, it, it stayed in the circle. Never left the ring. How many people were there? I think eight. The people I saw looked like teenagers, except the man in the middle. I don't know how old he was, but he was something. He was doing something weird. Two of the people, I didn't really see their faces, but they looked homeless, to be honest. They tried running away into the woods. One barely left the clearing, but the other got pretty far before he took them down. Took them down? You know, like I said, I don't know what David and Goliath type sling he was using or what, but he waved his arm above his head and sparks of fire spun outward from it. And then he aimed it. Aimed it? Threw it. I'm not sure how to describe it, but he sent a ball of fire or a burning log. I'm not sure. After each, each of them, and it just took them out. While he was distracted with them, the other five people scattered and I followed their lead, running towards where Mill Creek is so I could stay by the bank and find my way back to the bridge faster. Shadow Man, that's who you saw? I believe so. And he was throwing fire? It sounds crazy, but yes. And the forest fire grew very fast after that. Right as I got back home, I could hear the first sirens of the fire engine. And you never told anyone this? I, I couldn't. Wouldn't this have helped the police? You think they wouldn't believe that story? Should I? That's up to you. But the way people talk about you around here makes me think you're on the right track. They say we're doing a good job? No. They hate you and think you're prying. But I think it means you're doing a good job. So, uh, I'm sorry for harping on this. But why not tell the police what you saw? Because what you just told me actually tracks with what I'd found out about the fire so far. If I went to them and told them I was at the scene of the crime they were desperately looking for a culprit to pin it on, they would have said it was me. I had a record for shoplifting. As a kid? Let me put it this way. I was not a good kid. I got into a lot of trouble. Shoplifting was an easy thing for them to catch me on. But I caused a lot more trouble than that. So you don't want them to know who you are? If they knew who I am, they'd say I did it. They will blame me. I'm certain of it. But you saw Shadow Man do it. Shadow Man is an idea to them. They don't ever intend on actually catching that person. 
But if they could reopen and then close the arson case that almost destroyed the town, they'd take that opportunity for sure. I'm not sure how accurate his opinion on the police reaction is, but he offered a lot of information that, ultimately, seems to match up with things I've found out separately. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and let him keep his anonymity so he can go back to his life, knowing he finally got the thing off his chest he'd been needing to for decades. He'd finally course-corrected on his base-level decision. I feel like that, truly, is the reason he reached out to me multiple times, despite his obvious reluctance to come forward and admit any part in what had transpired that night. When I returned to the rental car, I found Omari where I'd left him, just angrier at me for walking out of public, where we'd agreed I'd stay. But once I told him what had happened, things smoothed over. With that interview complete, we turned our attention elsewhere. Kelly Findlay, Cameron's mother, had agreed to sit down for an interview as well to discuss his untimely death. Cameron had been buried four days prior, with a small ceremony attended only by close family and friends. In the days since, Kelly spent most of her time cleaning the house and sorting through his belongings to decide what to keep and what to donate. When we arrived at the house, stacks of cardboard boxes lined the downstairs hallway, all filled with folded clothing and now unused musical equipment, including two guitars, an amp, and some microphones. He fancied himself the vocalist of a band back in high school. Why not keep these? For their sentimental value. The truth is, he gave up on that dream years ago. He sort of... I think he lost his way. None of this stuff represents him anymore. It was all the drugs. Tell us about that. I don't know who exactly got him hooked on them. Some of his friends from work, I think. He'd, he'd hang out with them after his shifts, stay out until three, four in the morning sometimes. At first I thought he was drinking, but he never touched any of the alcohol I've got here. Eventually I realized the way he was acting the, the day after he'd go out wasn't from a hangover, though. It, or at least not an alcoholic one. I found the pills in his room, hidden away in his sock drawer. Some old prescription from one of his friend's parents. I pulled him aside, had a discussion about drug use, and he just got sneakier. Looking back, the decision I made was dumb, but I figured I'd let it slide. The prescriptions would only last so long, right? Eventually he would just run out of the pills, which he did. But then those were replaced by heroin, and once that dried up fentanyl, the drugs never stopped. He was still getting them from somewhere, somehow. I never figured that one out. How did he react when you told him you'd found his stash? <laughs> Actually, he didn't. It either didn't register or he was still high at the time, so he wasn't worried about the future. I don't know. That's the worst part about all of this, is he just stopped caring. He stopped trying. For the longest time, he wanted to go to college. He was working at the restaurant to save up money for a community, and then once the drugs showed up, his money evaporated, and 
He didn't seem to care about that goal anymore. Did you have any talks with him about that? About what he was passing up on? I considered giving him an ultimatum. One month to get clean or get out. But I backed off before I even told him. I knew he'd just get worse on his own and I couldn't do that to him. And what about rehab? <laughs> Son, do you know how expensive rehab is? So, he was on fentanyl most recently. Yeah, I don't know how he got it. I know he had pills somehow, and I know when he was at work, he liked to wear the patches for the slow release, and that's where things got dangerous. More recently, he'd started up drinking, and I noticed my bottles were getting emptier that day. Two weeks ago? <laughs> yep. <laughs> he took a couple of shots in the morning and then took a nap with two patches on, and that's when he never woke up. I'm sorry to hear that. Did... And this might sound weird, but did any of this feel like it might be connected to the Shadow Man murders? What? Aiden Lewis was murdered by Shadow Man directly across the street from your house the same day Cameron died. So, do you think it might be possible that Cameron's death is in any way linked? Hun, I know what you're trying to do, but Cameron died of a drug overdose. Unless Shadow Man gave them to him, no, they're not linked. I'm sorry, I'm just checking. Well, did he ever talk about any experiences with Shadow Man? I don't know that he believed Shadow Man was a real thing. He was always a bit of a contrarian when he was younger, and then once he got hooked on the drugs, he wasn't worried about getting murdered. He was worried about his next hit. Do you think you could have done more to help him? I'm a single mother who was trying to walk a line between allowing my child to make mistakes and live his own life and being overbearing and pushing him away. Did I want better for him? Of course I did. But he was always going to be able to find the drugs. The question was whether I would be in his life. We got in plenty of arguments over the years and it almost tore us apart. He was his own person though and all I could do was tell him I'd be there for him when he decided to take those first steps towards recovery. I know it's easy on the outside to look at the situation and want to throw suggestions at me, but... We're not here to do that. I loved my son, and I didn't know what to do. I loved him. So don't look at me like I'm some negligent mother. I know what people say about me. About all the parents of the kids who overdose here, I, I know. And I'm going to have to live with those whispers for the rest of my life, so please. Let's switch it back to Shadow Man for a second. He's been spotted around the town a lot lately, especially in the run-up to Aiden's murder. Did you ever see him? You're asking about this, um, I don't know, once, maybe? You did? I don't, I don't know, it was brief. What happened? It was a couple of years ago during a lockdown. Where did you see him? He was walking through the back 
yard. Yeah. Really? Well, what, what was he wearing? What did he look like? Um, he had jeans and a ski mask on. And like, I, I don't know, it was dark. I could barely make anything out. But you're sure it was him? I, I don't know. Um, but who else would be out during a lockdown? Did you call the police? Of course. By the time they got there, like 20 minutes later, he was gone. That's a long time for such a small town. Yeah, I thought so too. Who knows, maybe. They were answering other calls about Shadow Man, though. There are only so many of them. True. Kelly was very forthcoming, and I appreciate her candor about her son's death, especially so soon after it happened. Amari and I thanked her and left her to continue with the reorganization of not just her home, but her life. This town was built on buried secrets, and every family seemed to have some, but none more so than the Blythe family. They were one of the first families to move to the area, leaving the D.C. suburbs around the turn of the century. This was right as the progressive era kicked off with President McKinley's election. For them, getting away from the modernization was key. They came to the middle of nowhere and set up camp, hoping to be left alone. But as time went by, more people joined them, building houses and eventually stores. Not long after, there were enough people in the area for the town to be incorporated. But still, the family kept their distance. They rarely talked to anyone who'd end up near them, and for the most part, people respected their wishes. But we'd heard things. Ava, in particular, suggested they were known to practice the occult. And with the way the Shadow Man stuff was shaping up, we couldn't rule that out as an avenue to explore. And to really get a sense of where the town had come from, I figured speaking to a family with the deepest roots made sense. They didn't answer my calls at first, but Ava suggested sending them a letter, which we did at the end of our first week in Garrison. After a few weeks of waiting, we finally got a response. Emmett Blythe, the 25-year-old son of Thatcher and Constance Blythe, agreed to a brief interview about the town's history. As Omari and I drove to their place, I noticed that what we'd considered rural this whole time was nothing compared to where the Blythes lived. Their house, built by their own hands, is at this point secluded from the rest of the garrison residents. They live on the outskirts of town, off a dirt road in the northwestern corner of garrison. An orchard of apple trees precedes their property, cutting them off from any views of the main roads through town. When Omari and I pulled up to the house, almost ten minutes early, Emmett was already standing on the porch, waiting for our arrival. I was going to take a minute to prepare ourselves, but I guess we're just going to walk right into this. Finn. He's just staring at me. Well, don't stare back. Uh, he's not blinking. What is... How is he doing that? Be pleasant. We joined Emmett on his porch, where he motioned to a few chairs facing the apple orchard. Following his lead... We sat down, and the interview began. Emmett, thank you for agreeing to this. So what do you all do for work out here? We have the apple orchard. How many people live with you again? My mom, my dad, three of my grandparents, my younger brother and sister. 
Is the apple orchard enough to pay for all them to survive? I feel like you need more than that. We also get government assistance. That makes more sense. So what about the mines around here? Did your dad or anyone ever work in those? No. The two closest mines are closed now, anyhow. So what does everybody in the town do for work, then? It just seems like there isn't a booming economy out here. We keep to ourselves. We don't know what they do out there. So, I noticed all these wind chimes you've got hanging around the house. What are those symbols? Protection. From what? The spirits out there. What type of spirits are out there? The tethered. Stuck here for one reason or another. A lot of them don't like it. Then again, some of them do. Won't leave quietly. Have you ever seen any spirits? Do you know who Shadow Man is? Of course I do. Do you think he's a spirit? Leaves us alone. Why do you think that is? Emmett merely gestured at the wind chimes in response. So your protection spells work, you think? Shadow Man has never come here. Here it's the town. We tried to help him. How? He acts up more during financial stress for them, so we cast a financial prosperity spell for the town a couple decades back. Did that help? kills us often now. This wasn't true. He's killed just as frequently, if not more often, in the past two decades than the first two decades he was active, if you count Zachary Scott's death. Though, I can't blame Emmett for not being aware of that fact. Has your family always done rituals? They help us. Can you walk me through one? We can't do them here. We need to be at the ritual site. And where's that? By Mill Creek. Basalta clean? Yeah. So your family's the one who's been salting the earth there? We don't still do it. Then who's still salting it? No one. How is that possible? The dirt there is so salty to the point that nothing grows there, still. Oh, no. We don't still have to salt it because we buried salt there. When? Decades ago. One of my great-grandfather's first projects was setting up a ritual site we could use for generations. He found the perfect place, close to water, relatively even, and away from our property in case anything went wrong. Once he found it, he buried huge salt blocks half a dozen feet underground. That salt's been slowly working its way up a little at a time to keep the ground there pure for the rituals. Hmm. Interesting. How often do you do rituals? Not that often anymore. We're set for ourselves here. Emmett seems surprisingly well-adjusted given the reclusive life his family had foisted upon him. His family's reliance on spellcasting was compelling to me, the idea that though they kept their distance from the other townsfolk, they were still looking out for them with the financial prosperity spell. Whether it worked is a different matter, but in this instance, the thought seems to be what counts. For as weird as Ava had warned us he might be, Emmett struck me as someone with the best interests of others at heart. What I'd learned about the salt blocks, though, was very interesting to me, and the first person on my mind after hearing that was Barbara Murphy, the town historian. I gave her a call, and she cleared her schedule to meet up with me again. You told me you hadn't had a milkshake in a long time. Well, I decided to break that streak for you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Chocolate, right? <laughs> of course. So, what did you need to discuss with me? Actually, I'm sorry. I probably should have mentioned this last time. I'm lactose intolerant, though and I don't have a lactase pill with me. 
Oh, say no more. Head upstairs. I should have some in the bathroom up there. Oh, thank you. Normally, I'd have cut this bit out, but there was only one bathroom on the second floor. It was nice. Clean. Had a very pleasant lavender scent. Fresh bar soap in the dish. Inside the medicine cabinet, there were a bunch of normal things. Band-Aids, Tylenol, Benadryl, you get it. But on the top shelf, next to the box of lactase pills, there were three packs of naloxone. That struck me as odd. Naloxone is used to reverse opioid overdoses. What's the town historian doing with that? I grabbed a lactase pill and headed back down to Barbara's patio, where she was sipping at one of the milkshakes. I don't want to be a snoop, but up in the bathroom I saw something. What's that? Naloxone. At this point, you've heard about the overdose deaths around here, I assume. Yeah. I like to be ready, in case someone needs help. Oh, it's not for you? Oh, no. I'm in the minority here, I believe. But I don't use any drugs recreationally. Where are all these drugs coming from? It's not a huge city. It's not like there are hundreds or thousands of people sneaking these in here. It's got to be, at most, maybe a dozen people or so. Or else everyone would know who's doing it. The police have been investigating. They arrested a few teenagers a couple years back, I know that. Well, teenagers aren't running this. <laughs> there are multiple forms of opioids circulating around the town. This is more sophisticated than what they'd be able to pull off. You'd have to discuss that with the police. I just wanted to be prepared. Because too many times now I've heard those sirens and they've shown up at houses on this street or a few streets over and then they wheel out someone's body. It's hard. These aren't nobodies to me. We're a community and many of these victims I've watched grow up or in some cases grown up with. It's not just kids overdosing here, we're all affected. And that's what happened after the mines shut down. The main income source for the town dried up and suddenly everyone latched onto the government assistance and that was it. And now they're all barely scraping by with far too much free time on their hands. The prospect of escaping garrison is slim. No one can afford it. Most people in town are in debt, and moving would only exacerbate the issue, so we stay. I just spoke with Emmett Blythe. He seemed to have a different view on that. The Blythes are in their own situation. They get respect for helping found the town, but for the most part, we all leave them alone now. Well, that's actually what I wanted to bring up with you. Emmett told me his family had buried salt blocks in that clearing. It reminded me of when you said that the ground was still being salted. They buried it? Yeah, decades ago, I guess. So they wouldn't need to keep salting it. Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure how practical that is, considering the obsidian has now taken up most of the clearing. Well, there must still be more down there. You know what? Uh, should I follow you? I'll be right back. When she returned, she had a shovel in her hands. Up for a quick adventure? To the clearing? How big are these salt blocks that they're still able to have this effect? And how far down are they? None of my testing found any, and I was taking core samples from two feet down. Uh, well, uh... Let's go. And we were off. Barbara drove in her 1993 station wagon and got us to the forest edge closest to the clearing within 15 minutes. 
It was a little bit after 1 p.m. when we arrived at the empty space with our lone shovel. That's when it hit me that I was going to be doing a lot of work very soon. It's so peaceful here. I'm always amazed considering... A place where bad things happened won't be bad 100% of the time. So what happens if there's no salt block down here? The salt's coming from somewhere, so that would change things. I dug for about 20 minutes before I had to take a break. My palms were getting little blisters since I had no gloves to wear. At that point, I had created a roughly three foot wide by two foot deep opening in the ground right along the edge of the obsidian. Barbara had suggested following the edge of the rock down into the ground to see if it was the same relative thickness all the way down, or if it was more like a mountain expanding outward under the dirt. So far, it was the same thickness, and it continued that way over the 20 minutes as I got progressively deeper into the ground. I think we found something. We're at the bottom of the obsidian. I'm surprised it only goes about four feet down. I thought it'd be much deeper. Does that look like salt to you? It does indeed. So he was telling the truth. And what a weird truth that was. This was the same screech that almost ruined the recording last time I'd come to the clearing. Again, neither of us there at the time heard it. The recorder was picking up something beyond our perception. I'm loath to cut this out because I think it's important to know what was happening, but I think you get the point now. So, we'll skip to where it finally stopped. It's crazy to me that this just appeared here, except... What? Nothing, it's just... What do you see? See that little nub here? Where? Do you have that water bottle? So no one ever dug around here? I did. I never found anything strange apart from the salt. I guess it just... I didn't go deep enough to find the blocks. Thanks. Hmm. Weird, right? The rock's a little bumpy in places, but it's... It's definitely all black. Except for down here, right at the bottom. It almost looks like... Bone. Yeah, it's... It's so small, though. From a finger, maybe. A baby's finger. Oh. Do you think this might be Margaret Lee's? I don't... The dogs that follow the scent led to the forest, right? If, if not for the fire, what if that trail would have led them here, to this clearing? Barbara, I, I think we just found Margaret's body. Well, what's left of it? No wonder no one could find any trace of her. It would have burned up when this was all at its boiling point. Why didn't this part go? definitely looks warped. I think it started to melt away, but the dirt kept it insulated enough. But if that happened, then she had to have been buried there already. Before the fire. So whoever took her did it earlier in the night. We need to tell the police. Of course. I let Barbara handle that part of the discovery. In the little time left before word of this got out, I called Omari to pick me up and take me to one last house. This interview couldn't wait. Not after what we just found. Please be home. Fuck. Yes? 
Hi, Doug. Uh, we were wondering if we could have a chat. He did not want to. And I knew I probably shouldn't be talking with him before the police could fill him in, but I just... I felt like we'd finally gotten an answer. One we'd come here looking for. And I needed to let him know. All of this, dredging of the past, it had paid off. Finally. After a minute of internally debating, he agreed to a short interview when I told him we'd gotten new information about Margaret's disappearance. How's your knee? It's had better days. Well, maybe this will cheer you up. I don't know about that, necessarily. What? Well, it's not confirmed yet, but I think we might have found out what happened to Margaret. No. It's a lot to take in, I know. What happened? I think she's dead. That's what we've all thought. No, I mean... We found a bone. Where? It was buried in the clearing. That was someone's secret spot once. I know one person who would have known about that clearing. Who? I can't. Well, he wanted to remain anonymous. He saw his neighbor heading to the clearing, holding something. He did? The dogs led to the forest when they followed her scent, right? They did. The bone was so small, Doug, it had to have belonged to an infant. But you don't know that for sure. They're running DNA tests as we speak. Why are you telling me this? Because we just... I, I thought you'd want to know. I don't... need you to tell me what happened. You didn't have to go bring all this back up. I thought that's what you wanted. I didn't ask for this. You came to me and I, I just... went with it. I thought I was fine. Where are you going? I think we're done here. You know your way out. Doug. Finn, look at this. What? All of these. Where did you get those? They're like, I don't know, they're in between the cushions, like lost change. That's a lot of pills to lose, though. All the same, too. Mother love. Look, it's got a hole in it. Do you think it's... Do you think that's fentanyl? Well, whatever it is, it's not prescription. We should go. I want you out of my house. If you're... If you're just here to cause trouble... We were just telling you what we found. With this new evidence, the police might find out who did this. I thought you'd be happy. I said get out. Whoa. Um... Uh... Put that down. This is this is just a discussion. Uh, it didn't sound like one a second ago. You can't just barge in my home throwing accusations around. Can you put that... Okay, we weren't accusing you of anything, you know? Um, unless... Get out of my house! Doug. Don't say another word. Doug, were you the neighbor? You're being ridiculous. You perked up when I mentioned the secret spot. You knew what I meant. No. Don't push him. Doug. Did you kill Margaret? I did not kill her. Doug. I did not kill her. She... 
It, it was an accident. Oh my god. What happened? You can't possibly understand. Doug, my mom committed suicide. And I'm the one that found her body. I've seen horrible things, so... So try me. Margaret woke me up that night, uh, crying like usual. I, I went to her room to feed her and, and change her diaper. She'd made a huge mess, uh, too much to wipe up. So uh, once she was fed, I, I decided to wash her quickly. I'd never given her a bath before. I, I filled up the tub halfway with warm water. I, I tested it to make sure she wouldn't burn herself because I would never hurt her. She was the only good thing in my life. Kids at school made fun of my foot and at home, my father was, he hurt my mother so much. I put her in and cleaned her up. She was laughing and loving it, splashed me with water on accident. And when I realized I didn't have a towel, I, I went to the hall closet to grab one. I was only gone for 30 seconds. Oh no. She was totally submerged. I, I pulled her out as quickly as I could. Uh, I didn't know what to do. Uh, she wasn't breathing. Uh, I tried CPR, but uh, I'd only seen it in movies. I didn't know what I was doing. Why not call your mom for help? You... You don't know what it was like living with my dad. If he found out I'd hurt Margaret, his pride and joy, his normal kid, he liked to say, he would have... I don't know. And because I didn't know, she... <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't talked about this with anybody in 40 years. I had to stay quiet. And once you knew she was dead, you, you just... Wrapped her in a blanket and, and, and brought her to the secret spot and I buried her as deep as I could. And you went back home with her blanket. I locked the doors, washed up quickly, and, and then got in bed. Just right as the siren started. And you kept this a secret all those years. I'm sorry that happened, Doug. Now the police know, and they're going to come for me. No, Doug, it, it was an accident. I can't prove that. You need to leave. No, when they hear your side. Please leave. I'm not going to threaten you. I, I, I just... Please. Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll go. We're going to check in with you tomorrow, though. We left, and it felt wrong to do so. I didn't like leaving him alone with all of that crashing down on him at the same time. To be clear, I had no idea he'd done it until I realized it in that clip. But listening back, I can see how he took the things I was saying as accusations, and I think that's why it escalated for him. He felt trapped, like everything he'd tried to leave in the past was suddenly coming back up. And it clearly got to him. 
The next morning, we woke to the unfortunate news that not long after we'd left, Doug had turned the gun he'd been aiming at us on himself. In a hastily scrawled note, he mentioned old wounds being reopened, and somewhere, deep in his gut, he'd made the base-level decision to cut ties and leave all of this behind for good. Next time, on Strange Trails. Round here, we watch each other's backs. Never know what an outsider might be thinking of getting up to. And then around 12.30 a.m., the smoke detector went off downstairs. At what point are we going to address the fact that not all shadow men's items are equal? Strange Trails stars Matt Winton as Finn Mitchell, Dominic Kim as Omari Mason, and Ashley Every as Ava Cook. Additional performances by Rob Moore as Doug Lee, Mindy DeLacy as Barbara Murphy, Wayne Grant as Mel Voice, Natalie Jonah as Kelly Finley, and Dirk Absher as Emmett Blythe. Created, directed, and edited by Colton Woods. Script supervisor, Fernando Colazzo. Special thanks to Katie Joyce and Courtney Woods. Follow us on Instagram at Strange Trails Podcast or visit us at strangetrailspodcast.com for more info. If you like what you hear, ratings and reviews really help the show. Strange Trails will return in Silent Witness.